there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. The Soviet Union shot down Korean Air Flight 007 when it wandered into Siberian airspace, and then the Soviet Union actually admitted they shot it down about five days later. A week after that, the UN voted a resolution denouncing the action, as did the United States Congress, and the USSR's response to all of it was to basically shrug and go, and? Menachem Begin resigned as Israel's premier, and Arnold Schwarzenegger became a U.S. citizen. Coincidence? You be the judge. Kiss made their first unmasked appearance ever on MTV in the disappointment heard around the world and at the Emmys, Hill Street Blues and Cheers cleaned up his best drama and best comedy because TV was freaking awesome in September of 1983. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Hi everybody, I'm Drew McQueenie. Welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined as always by my co-host Scott Weinberg. What's up Scott? Uh Hi, everyone. I'd like to clarify something for people who have asked. Drew is my co-host. I am not his co-host. All right. Like a lot of that is true. All right. There's a very subtle delineation there, and I hope people get it right. All right. I anyway, apologize. If you've propagated that, 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 that theorem, then, then you, I accept your apology. No, uh, okay. I would like to send out a big virtual hug <laughs> to all of our listeners, all of our patrons. Uh, there are some very cool new bonus episodes up, and we will have some very excellent bonus episodes coming up soon, including our first ever live from Cinepocalypse in Chicago episode. Drew, are you excited to take our show on the road with the illustrious Jonah Ray? It's pretty crazy, the idea that we're going to sit on stage and talk about a movie with him if you had told like me when I was watching Mystery Science Theater in the early 90s in my apartment with my buddies that that would ever happen, I'm sure it's as thrilling to us as it was when Jonah got the nod to do the show. Like It's such an exciting thing. And then he's going to do our format as well. He's going to come on and play 80s all over with us, which I'm very excited to see like what his taste is and what kind of films he picks for that. It's going to be great. Well, you'll be hearing a lot more about Cinepocalypse from us in coming weeks. But thank you to the festival. Thank you to Music Box Theater. And uh, let's get on with the show. Uh, I will say, I don't know if I full-on pulled a boner, but uh, I will say to Keir D'Elia fans that I also like Black Christmas. Keir D'Elay! Keir D'Elay. Keir D'Elay. That I also like Black Christmas, and I think David and Lisa's, okay, it's fine. So, yeah, you guys don't have to tell me on Twitter that those two films exist. I acknowledge that he was in a couple of other good films. And that's the end of September 
1983. Drew, thank you, was, thank you. This was, was a, a good great month. That wasn't that. It painful. really feels like it flew by, and I am so happy because it was a motherfucker getting ready. Oh, for oh, it. wait, we did forget a couple of films. Let's oh, start. Oh God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Let's right. start with something called Striker. Amazon warriors prowl the wasteland, wanted for their secret, the last clear spring on Earth. Where did you get the water? Time is running out. Let's take her down. No! No! Striker, one last hero taking one last chance. So, Scott, this is here's my feeling about movies like Striker at this point. There was an industry of Mad Max cosplay movies in the 80s where people just went, holy shit, I really like Mad Max. Hey, dude, you've got some leather. Let's go to the desert and shoot one. And they're just playing Mad Max in the desert. It's ridiculous. You're exactly right. It's the exact same thing as, oh, Friday the 13th and Halloween made money. Forget the fact that both of those have some filmmaking skill behind them, one much more than the other. And a bunch of people ran off into the forest. When Blair Witch was huge, everybody thought, oh, this is simple. Let's just, again, run off into the woods with a camera. There was something about certain film forms that just looks easy. And in this one, like, I'll say this for the guy who directed Stryker, and I didn't look his name up because I guarantee I don't care. He has at least a not offensive eye. Yeah, you could see that there was some inkling of creativity that was lost beneath the endless waves of redundant plotting. It is just, this one seems to have Jawas in it for some reason. I'm not sure why. (laughs) And, And it has countless car chases in which... The cars go at most 45 miles an hour. Clearly, he tried to take apart how George Miller shot some of this stuff. And there's a lot of it where he shoots low and he thinks that you don't have to move the car if you're shooting low. The thing was, George Miller was still on moving cars when he was shooting from these low angles. He just wasn't going as fast as you think he was. You can tell that he looked at some of these other movies and he looked at how they shot action and he tried to take it apart and kind of reverse engineer it. Not unclever, like he's not completely we've without seen, ability. Yeah, we've seen we've seen much worse. So, hey, Scott. Hey, Drew. If I were to tell you that our next film was from the same writer as Shaft and the French Connection, would you believe me? No, because I've seen Last Plane Out. Three American journalists on assignment in a country gone to hell. Do yourself a favor, Jack. Get out if you can. Get out. Not until I get a story. This country's in trouble. Come with me. It's still my country. I got an emergency. We run out of time. Jan Michael Vincent. You never prayed before. You better pray now. Mary Crosby, David Huffman, and Julie Carmen as Maria. There is no escape if they miss the last plane out. Dude, Ernest Tidyman. I mean, this is the guy that wrote High Plains Drifter. This is, I mean, he is a hell of a writer. I guarantee whatever was on the page was not what we finally got with this movie. You'll often hear about how, like, some of the Conan the Barbarian knockoffs actually managed to make it into theaters before Conan the Barbarian because they saw it coming. Next month, we'll have a very good film with Nick Nolte called Under Fire. Last Plane Out kind of covers the exact same territory earlier cheaper, sillier, has a couple of good action beats, but as far as being taken as a serious film about a a political issue that's happening, it's not at all realistic. It's clearly propagandistic as well. I've been now covering current film for 20 years, 
and we're going back and we're writing about this whole decade, and you start to really pick cycles out. And one of the things that you realize is that there's films that get made where they, they'll tell the most basic story, and all that ever changes is you just change where it happens. And this is one of those, there's a journalist, there's a war, there's a rebel, they're in love, and... You could do this anywhere. This happens to be because it was made in 1983, Nicaragua with a Sandinista. But it's so basic and the politics are so unimportant in terms of the film actually giving a shit about either side of it. It's just something to set it against. These movies sort of bug me because it feels like they just went to the newspaper and went, all right, where can we do this hack thing that that we've done 50,000 times, but where's the current place to do it? The problem is not that this is kind of a clunky B movie. It's that it's one that has aspirations of like docudrama. It's got Jan Michael Vincent in the lead, who is he's just not a good actor. He's never been a good actor. I'm sorry to the children of Jan Michael Vincent that I am speaking so ill of your father. I don't think any of the cast is particularly great. Mary Crosby, I don't think it's particularly believable or, or good in the film. It's a really rough movie, and uh, it's one where they switch directors midstream. I don't know the guy who's credited David Nelson, like, I know it's David Nelson of Ozzie and Harriet, but I don't know his work as a director beyond that. Anyway, that's Last Plane Out, and it's Last Plane Boring. This next one was not easy to find, and I'm really kind of heartbroken, not because I think it's a great movie, but because movies like this should not disappear. This is the follow-up film from the director of The Long Good Friday, for God's sake, and uh, it's either called, depending on where you saw it, The Honorary Consul, or... Beyond the Limit. The first time he saw her, she was a prostitute. The second time, she was his best friend's wife. The third time, she was his. Michael Caine. Richard Gere. Beyond the Limit. Rated R. Beyond the Limit is not a very good film, but it's got a lot of good components and interesting tidbits for film fans there. The biggest mistake is the Richard Gere casting. Yes, yes, the whole cast is great, and Richard Gere is meant to play a man of Spanish descent. Oh, boy, no. And his accent is somewhere between the Latin American, Argentinian accent he's surrounded by and a British accent, and it and neither one of them works. It's really, it's almost disastrous on his part. It's yeah, based on a Graham Greene novel, and uh, there is some interesting stuff in this. It's set in Argentina during the Dirty War, and there's a doctor who's just trying to be a doctor in the middle of all of this, and can't. And part of it is because he can't keep his dick in his pants. And part of it is also because his conscience eventually gets poked at a bit. And I'm fascinated by this point in Argentinian history. My ex-wife is Argentinian and her dad was secret police. So I have heard some crazy goddamn stories about these years. There's not much in terms of film that has ever really dealt with this era. There's something great right now about watching a film that is set at a time where All you have to do is piss off the wrong person and you're gone politically, personally, maybe even physically. Okay, it's got a score by Paul McCartney. (laughs) I know, isn't that crazy? Wait, it's got Michael Caine and Bob Hoskins and it's got a good performance by Elpidia Carrillo, who most people would know from Rambo, too. Well, and Predator. 
the girl from Predator who is in this, I think is really strong. And there was a point where I think Hollywood, she kind of had that Maria Conchita Alonso uh, lane where she was getting all of these roles. It and was just nice to see her given dialogue. She has almost none in either of those movies. <laughs> yep. And it's also got a major role for the guy that I always refer to as the uh, Latin American uh, Phil Hartman, Joaquin D. Almeida. Oh, he's great. And he's so young here. He always looks like so young in this. He always yeah. looks 60. When he was 38, he looked 60. Uh, he's just such a good actor. And I'm watching. I'm like, is that it is? <laughs> Chris Hampton wrote the screenplay. It's, I mean, it's got a great pedigree. And seriously, this is the first thing he did after Long Good Friday. There was a lot of weight on the film. And I think Gear is one of the reasons that the thing just just went belly up. He just can't carry the weight of this movie. And again, let's not turn this into a Richard Gere hate fest because he has, of course, he's done some good work in many films throughout this decade. And we'll get to them. It just seems like he was miscast here. And a lot of times an actor, it's up to them to go, Oh, you know what? This one might not be a good fit for me. I got four other options right now. I'm going to take one of those. And with a different lead, this might be not as well remembered as long good Friday, but can you imagine this movie? If Raul Julia had played that part? Oh, stop it. Stop it. Can you there? I just did. My God. Really helpful for a podcast audience. Yes. To watch me Imagining. Things imagine through. just stop. Be quiet completely. <laughs> and imagine. <laughs> Ca- uh, carry uh, over to the um, fun-to-discover colorful films you never saw before that are not very good. Is that a segue? Let's discuss. Let's discuss Who Dares Wins, a.k.a. the final option. They've made contact. We'd like a nuclear missile to be fired at the Holy Lock submarine base. We want this to be done in the name of peace. And what if we refuse to give you your nuclear explosion? Then we begin killing everyone here. Thank you, Commander Powell. Talk about a movie with uh, with a lot on its mind. There's a lot of movies this, this month that we're going to talk about that are dealing with, at the time, very hot-button political issues in ways that I think are bizarre. Like, I, these are strange issue movies. Ripped from the headlines thriller about an SAS officer who infiltrates a, a terrorist block. It's a not a very good film. However, I will say that there is one person in this movie that makes it absolutely fantastic every moment they are on the screen. Drew, who is that person? Would that be Judy Davis? The movie is worth watching for Judy Davis's fantastic performance as this evil terrorist monster. She's very good in it. And there's there is some nice work in the movie from a couple of supporting because I like Robert Weber a lot. I, I always think Robert Weber is one of those great shitty white dudes. And he's got some great shitty white dude moments in this. But yeah, it's for the most part a little inert. It's a major rush job. I'm sure you read the same research that I did, that the producer watched the live coverage of the Iranian hostage crisis in 1980, immediately commissioned an author to write a book, and as the book was written, handed it over to a screenwriter, and the thing was, like, cobbled together, like, train in front of the tracks kind of way, and it shows in the final product in that they, you know, the rush to get something out while it's still hot topical. Yeah, and they try at the end to make this like a movie that's indignant about the fact that there are people who die at embassies every year. There are diplomats who die. And it's not like this movie gets to the heart of what causes anything like this or... It would be like if Nighthawks at the very end tried to be a serious political thriller <laughs> about terrorism. And it's if you want to watch this film, it's just 
silly escapism, very dated action piece about spies and uh, moles and terrorists, then it's perfectly watchable, but it's kind of mindless and sloppy. Sloppy yeah. is the word I'm looking yeah. for. Uh, also sloppy, but I'm looking forward to talking about this one, Drew. You know we love horror anthologies here on 80s All Over. This next one, yeah, Scott, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and give us the title. When you watch bad movies, you often get nightmares. Somewhere between the real and the unreal, between the world of daylight and the dark of night, between the peaceful sleep of dreams and the endless sleep of death, lies the realm of nightmares. As any horror fan worth their salt can tell you, Nightmares began its life as a TV pilot for a failed NBC anthology series, and instead of just burning the negative, they decided to dump it into theaters, and it did have a pretty provocative marketing campaign, I remember that much, and it got me to watch the movie at least three times when it was on (laughs) HBO. I never did see it in theaters, but why not? Let's break these stories down piece by piece, like Twilight Zone episodes or, yeah, that's being kind. Yeah. That is an ambitious description of the actual stories here. Part of the part of what makes Twilight Zone special is that Rod Serling used those stories to not just give us twists. And I think people get hung up on the twists in Twilight Zone stories, but those twists are meant to illuminate ideas. And ultimately what Serling would do is he would build a hook around a big idea. And so there was always some other reason to tell the story on Twilight Zone. It, was, it might not have been a twist, but there was some other yeah, level. There is no other level to these. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's fine. You know, we'll get to other like one called Campfire Tales. There's certainly nothing wrong with a basic anthology that delivers just Campfire Tales. But Drew, what did you think of story one? Terror of Topanga. Ga, ga. Uh, Woman goes out for cigarettes. Uh, it's in, there's a killer on the loose. It might be in her backseat. Spoilers. Might be. The only noteworthy thing about that story is that William Sanderson is it, and he is a character actor that we will always mention when he shows up in a film. The second story in Nightmares is probably the most famous one among genre fans, because not only does it feature a hilariously inept performance by Emilio Estevez, but it also is focused around... Video games. And uh, like most stuff about video games, you can tell that it was made and written by people that uh, not only had never played a video game, but were a little baffled by the idea of them. This is called the Bishop of Battle. Boy, that just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Terror of Topanga, Bishop of Battle. Come on, dude. Get into the fun of nightmares. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to have some fun, but I'm holding back for when we get there. Uh, Emilio Estevez plays a stupid idiot who bets on video games and is obsessed with reaching the final level of a video game called what? The Bishop of Battle? That's right, Drew. You're paying attention. Bishop of Battle is fine. It's mainly uh, interesting for me because Emilio Estevez is, uh, he has got the shut up, mom, turned up to 11, which is really funny. There was act two of this segment would be him arguing with his parents about how important it is that he goes out and beats this. And it's like, dad, I'll get a job. Just let me beat this high score, man. And You don't understand. I just have to beat the 13th level. Then I'll go to college. (laughs) <laughs> right, no, and then they're they're delivering this with the earnest nature of, Dad, I just have to beat my alcoholic addictions and then I can move on with my life. <laughs> like, it's that kind of yeah. sobriety. It's a ridiculous, yeah, and it ends precisely when it should, which now takes us to what Drew wants to cover, Lance Henriksen as a 
defrocked priest in Benediction. This is, to me, the worst of the bunch. The worst because it's boring. I don't think being boring is what makes it the worst. I think it being a blatant ripoff of Duel. Yeah, and it doesn't know what it's... Like, I still don't get, after watching it, how a truck and the devil are related or how this is... Like, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's just True, it's a metaphor. Truck equals guilt, chasing him. And then when the truck somehow gets underground... Mm-hmm. In the desert, and then shoots out like a like a Hot Wheels or drag strip race car set. Clearly what? being driven by Chuck Norris as Lone Wolf McQuaid. Like, here's what I want to know: Devil truck or normal truck? How did it back into a hole like that? I just can you imagine them setting up this whole shot, just being like, "What, what are we doing here?" Oh, oh, the the this semi truck is going to bolt out of the desert ground. Nailed it. But Drew, let's move on <laughs> oh, to the. Oh yes. Oh dear lord. Oh yes. The unwitting highlight of this menu of mediocrity. I, too, can break out the alliterations. Can I not? Daddy O. Drew. I am not kidding when I say I've watched this segment five times since I saw the film again. It stars two of our favorite actors, Veronica Cartwright and Richard Mazur. And it sounds on paper like a very standard story about a uh, a suburban family dealing with what may or may not be an inordinately large rat. Drew. <laughs> What makes this more special than, say, Deadly Eyes or of unknown origin? Well, first, you've got the piano teacher from Fame as the rat executioner who they go to, who then lays out for... And Richard Mazur wants no part of this. He wants to catch the rat himself. Veronica Cartwright, though, she wants an expert. And so they bring in the piano teacher from Fame who explains that this is no ordinary rat. This is a devil rat, Scott. That rat... It's going to live forever. When we get to finally meet the devil rat at the end of the uh, segment. Oh, I, it's funny because I talked to Toshi about this. I showed him the segment and he was <laughs> crying, laughing by the end. I, Wait, no, just, no, here, like, just in pain from the end of it. Right. No, describe it charitably first. OK, charitably. They took a regular size mouse and then they just blew it up via blue screen and they dropped it onto a very bad child's toy bed. That's the rat. And it roars. So it's awesome, pretty much beginning to end. I've seen documentaries of unused and just test footage from Ray Harryhausen films from the 1960s. Stuff that was never meant to be seen or put in films. That animation is better than what's on display here. Oh, it's it's incredible. Because the way it roars and the way the room shakes. And then when the little girl explains, it just wants its baby back. And they go and they get the dead baby rat. And then it goes to the window. It's unbelievable. The rat's acting is hilarious. The red eyes are hilarious when it's having the psychic communication. I feel like we've now, by describing this story so so clearly, we've now robbed our listeners of any potential fun they've had. Because me watching this segment with my mouth half open was most of the fun of Nightmares. In what, I, what I really love about this, though, is watch Veronica Cartwright. Because there are moments in Alien where she didn't know what she was reacting to because they didn't have it ready yet. Ah! She is giving you everything she gave Ridley Scott in this film. The difference is what they then cut to. And it makes her look crazy because (laughs) no one would react like that to that. Uh, Since both of her, two of her very best performances came in the 1970s, that being Alien and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, we haven't been able to give full due to Veronica Cartwright. So you know what, Drew? Let's use this cheesy forgotten anthology film as a moment to honor one of horrordom's great 
scared actors. Well, and that's what I'm saying is I, I she's giving everything, and I love her for that. When you watch her work in this, if they had just cut to a rat that wasn't insane, she would be great. She would be as good as she is in everything else. And it's where you realize an actor really earns their money because, man, she is she's giving it to you and assuming you're going to give it back to her when you finally put that monster in. Yeah. So yeah, uh, we'll get to Veronica Cartwright. She also gives a great (laughs) horror film performance in 87 in Witches of Eastwick, but she's been one of my favorite actors for my entire life. I, I absolutely adore Veronica Cartwright and I love Richard Macer. This character is written so pointlessly mean. Like, I don't understand it. Not only is he Richard Mazur just like a lovable suburban dad character, but he's like, hurry on the phone with. No, hang up. I don't want your help with the rat. Shut up. I will kill this rat with my teeth. All right, all right. Calm down, dude. All right, so let's move on from one forgettable horror film to another one. Although this one's slightly better, kind of. Sweet 16. Bet a lot of people around here like to know you're into little girls. Look, leave me alone, okay? What? What's the matter? Don't you want to hear the details about how that poor old man was twitching from his ceiling because you decided you wanted a little attention? You drank or smoked dope or anything? Well, I do a little of everything. Everything? Ooh. Maybe we should get together sometime. <laughs> Something evil is here. Sweet 16. Rated R, 17, not admitted without parent. Generic uh, is yeah. a word I like to use a lot. Not inept, not not awful. It's got Susan Strasberg, Patrick McNee, uh, Bo Hopkins, who sometimes is embarrassing and sometimes is fun. He's fun in this, and I know you like Don Stroud, right? I think the cast is fine. I think the kids are cute kids, and it is perfunctory and fine and i i feel like people feel like we maybe are beating up a little bit on the genre if you're looking for i just want to throw a slasher film on and i just don't want to be offended by it and i want it to be a mid-range slasher for me yeah it's, it kind of serves the purpose and it's one that i haven't seen 50 times which that's one of the reasons that i think horror fans dig so deep into catalog titles is because you see the great great stuff over and over you kind of want something else. And so you start really looking for moments or things that are okay or gems that are just, they're fine. And that's Sweet 16. It's fine. While we often try to balance uh, uh, nostalgia versus contemporary views, we could also flip it the other way. And if you and I were the exact same guys at 30 years old in the mid 80s, and we went to see virtually every horror movie we went to see, it would be fair to say that we would give this one a mildly positive review because it doesn't seem as lazy and lethargic as the rest. Look, we're gonna we've got a couple other horror films. We got another post apocalyptic movie this week. With each of them, you you walk in, you acknowledge what it is, and then you look to see now what did they do with it. Plot wise, you've seen this a thousand times, but it moves relatively quick. It's clearly shot by people who know what they're doing. Pa- forgettable, passable, sweet sixteen. Uh. How'd you feel about Frightmare? This time, die! We did something bad. I know someone is after me. 
know that Frightmare shares a title with a 1974 British film of the same name, but since the 1970s is not our purview, to borrow my favorite word again, <laughs> we are going to now look at 1983's Frightmare, also known as The Horror Star. That makes sense. It's about a bunch of horror fans who kidnap a... <laughs> they steal the corpse of an actor they love and do unkind things to it, and it then comes back and kills them all. The setting is not bad. It's a mansion, you know, not unlike Hell Knight. So it has some atmosphere, and you got to assume that back in the day when you went to, like, uh, like a B-movie double feature or a drive-in, just sometimes, like, a dark, creepy setting is half the movie. It's got some moments. It's got some good gore. It, one of the earliest performances by Jeffrey Combs. It was a trauma acquisition, but not production. Boy, can you tell. It definitely wants to be icky. Like, there's, you know, one of the girls makes out with the dead body, and there's it wants to be shocking in a few places. It's fairly... Uh, amiable as, as horror films go like Frightmare yeah Frightmare eh, it, it happened um, and then uh, I kind of feel the same way heading into this next one Wait, I wanted to just introduce the next film in song if I may you may Nightmares Frightmare Sweet 16 Mortuary is boring as fuck <laughs> give me the axe a killer's fury And at just the point where the comfort of home offers an apparent sanctuary. Just when you think you're safe. Just when help is only a phone call away. Mortuary where nobody rests in peace. Let's get the hell out of here. Early performance by Bill Paxton, one of my favorite actors of all time, and it was great to see a young performance from him that was slightly off kilter, not entirely feral or weird all the way through, and I think he does a pretty good job in the movie. Beyond that is a very conventional boilerplate piece of horror about there may be some occult goings-on at a local mortuary. Over to you, Drew. It takes forever to get where it's going. Uh, Christopher George and Linda George are in this. Uh, it is the first of their two egregious wrongs against horror this month. It's got like three gross moments in it, one of which is Bill Paxton talking to somebody while he's performing a uh, an autopsy. And it kept making me laugh because every time they cut to the shot from above where you see the actual makeup appliance that he's putting the, the big sucking needle into, if you look at her face in the foreground... She's blinking and she's looking at it and she's moving her eyes and it's, man, this movie is at best slightly half-assed, at very best. It, I'm watching this one and it, it just keeps reminding me that even in this stage of the 80s, which is now moving from early to mid-80s, you're still seeing a lot of screenplays that are written by people who wanted to do a Murder, She Wrote pilot and then just threw in five or six murders and said, hey, I wrote a horror movie. Uh, this one is, uh, unfortunately, not very good. Speaking of not very good, Drew, I'm, I'm going to take a deep breath and maybe uh, sip a glass of water here while you introduce this next film. There was a point in this film where I started praying for an ending. And when it got there and they gave me that ending plus 50%, I fell deeply, passionately, permanently in love with Pia Zadora in The Lonely Lady. I just drank an entire bottle of water. Hollywood is a world of glamour. 
A world where everything has its price. <laughs> and nothing is forbidden. Piazzadora is the lonely lady. She's determined to take nothing less than everything Hollywood has to offer. This is such a piece of shit. This is such a terrific, monumental, almost unimaginable piece of shit that every moment of it is special. It is so bad that it almost feels like every scene and every line and every performance is italicized as if it's a warning for filmmakers what not to do. It is unbelievably inept. It's crazy. I feel like when they cast Ray Liotta, Ray Liotta called home and he's like, hey, mom, dad, I got a movie. What are you doing? Well, um, don't go see it. Pia Zadora stars as a woman who has aspirations of being not only a screenwriter, but the best screenwriter in the world. She has affairs. She marries a very well-known, successful screenwriter. Then he gets very upset because she rewrites a scene better than he can. And Pia Zadora couldn't act wet if you threw her in a lake. She is terribly inept as an actress. And much like in the film we covered earlier, Butterfly, this film exists solely because her very wealthy husband bankrolled more than half of it with the studio based on a Harold Robbins novel, and the whole thing was built out of ego and sleaze. And like John Derrick, what is this weird urge these rich dudes have to make movies in which their much younger wives bone a whole bunch of guys? I don't what? get it, dude. <laughs> it's such a weird genre, and... I, you're right. She couldn't act like she was falling if I threw her out of a plane without a parachute. She's insanely terrible in this movie. Wait, wait, wait. We got to check. We have to get better analogies because I said threw in a lake. You said throw her out of a river. How about this? Pia Zadora couldn't act comfy if we sat her on a couch. Pia Zadora could not act hot if I lit her on fire. No, then again, you're hurting her. Oh, okay. Pia Zadora couldn't act fun on a roller coaster. Okay, I see what you're saying. Let's go the other direction. So Pia Zadora could not act uh well she could not act i i think that's pretty <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> all right there you go yeah, i just I didn't want all of our analogies yeah, to be you no, know think, mean okay, metaphors no, no analogy there we go no analogy just let's let's be honest it was it's awful uh and, and you know what though like we wouldn't hold it against the film and probably her so much if it wasn't such an egregious example of hollywood bullshit Oh, well, that's what makes this movie so much so insane is this is a movie that is angry at awards ceremonies and at the Hollywood establishment. And it calls the industry a bunch of whores. And literally the end of this film is she finally wins an Oscar and gets up on stage and goes, yeah, here's my Oscar. Go fuck yourself. I don't want it. And then storms off. And it's supposed to be this giant triumph for her because she's turned her back on a system that was so cruel to her. And. To have this movie that is this angry about the award system made by two people who literally just bought a Golden Globe for her in the previous Thank you. movie. You, you just summed it up. The, the almost bizarro irony of them making a movie about somebody who doesn't deserve a big award and then the film him buying her a, a big award. People scream with laughter when they watch like Mommy Dearest. And I'll say this about... Faye Dunaway in that film is they're laughing because Faye Dunaway went for it. Like she played that character a thousand percent. And this you're laughing because she 
can't deliver even the most fundamental lines in a way that sounds like a human being. There's the great one where she walks out of the clinic, her mom picks her up and is giving her shit in the car. And she goes, mother, I had an abortion. And I, I fell off the couch. And you're not supposed to laugh at that. But Pia Zordora is playing this character from what looks like 15 to when she is a 47-year-old alcoholic who's been in an asylum. And they don't change her makeup or her hairstyle yeah, or her you know, appearance. It, it, it does feel like a dime store Francis. There, I didn't think of that until now, but it does feel like a poor man's or poor woman's Francis. Uh, apparently, Harold Robbins, uh, who wrote the novel, called it terrible. And <laughs> boy, for Harold Robbins to call an adaptation terrible, that, that says something. Uh, <laughs> we now go live to Drew McWeeny with an art house report and his focus on a little-discussed Costa Gavras film starring Joe Clayburgh and Gabriel Byrne. It's called Hannah Kay. It's real hard to find, and there is a reason for that. You know, we've talked several times on this podcast already about movies that felt like they were ripped from the headlines, and certainly this is one of the first times Hollywood was trying to get its head around how to deal with Israel and Palestine on, on film. And uh, you could tell Hollywood didn't know what to do. If you're going to do this... Costa Gavras seems like he'd be the right guy. Like, if there, there's very few political filmmakers who are as, as political or as good at it as him, but no, he did not turn out to be the guy. Um, the movie's about a lawyer played by Jill Clayburgh, who is Jewish, and uh, her family uh, is made up of Holocaust survivors. So they moved to America. Now she's moved back to Israel to be a lawyer, and she's appointed a client to defend who has been accused of terrorism and of infiltrating the country. Uh, he is Palestinian, and he's upset. He says he just wants his family's home back. And that begins this entire thing where he's deported, he's brought back, they try to find a way to get him into the system so that he can maybe get his family's house back. She starts to see him sympathetically, and it's a lot to lay on any movie to try to have that debate. And it, it's largely impossible to see now. It, it was greeted with pretty much open hostility when it came out. And I think if you're going to make a film about this topic... It has to be a great film because you're talking about a film that's going to have to get past a lot of um, people's natural emotional reactions. No matter what their position is, the movie has to be great to get past that. And this movie is not. So it just kind of, I, I feel like it is a shot fired and I get it. He wanted to make this work, but he, he, there's no drama in it. We now stick with Drew in the art house corner so he can discuss an Australian film from 1982 called Lonely Hearts. Now, what can we do for you, sir? This is Peter Thompson, piano tuner who's feeling a little frayed at the edges. And he has, by the way, just lost his mum. But as one door closes, another opens. This is Patricia Kerno, who, as you can see, works in a bank. She's rather shy, timid, about to embark on a new adventure. She happens to have contacted the same introduction agency as Peter. You don't think she's a bit young for me? Not at all, Mr. Thompson. She's the type who needs a mature man. Now let's see what a proper appliance can do. You'll remember Lonely Hearts for its warmth, its insight and humour. True to life, a sensitive love story simply told. Lonely Hearts, awarded Best Film, 1982 Australian Film Awards. A gentle film, a love story that wasn't meant to be so funny. 
it's interesting because there's a lot of Australian films in the mix for this era, and I didn't go see all of them when I was a kid. I think a lot of it, uh, they got booked in art houses, and it just wasn't my, I wasn't aware of them. But clearly, it's all a response to like Peter Weir and George Miller and sort of the Australian new wave uh, starting to break the, the doors down commercially. And so, you know, you got movies like this that probably wouldn't have gotten a theatrical release even five years earlier. And it's a very tiny uh, romantic comedy. It's about a guy who is uh, in his middle age and he's living alone and he's uh, basically he's never really had a good relationship. And uh, he's a piano tuner who meets a girl at the bank um, who is not much younger than him and uh, just is sort of broken and closed. And it's the two of them starting to open each other up and start to uh, figure out a way that they might find some happiness with one another. And it reminds me a lot of Bill Forsyth in terms of the small observational stuff, but it's not as quirky funny. There is a lot of great humor. Uh, the the guy has a toupee that he wears that is a horrifying toupee, and a lot of the movie is about vanity and about you know being willing to let somebody really see you as opposed to the thing that you wear when you go out. And yeah, it's got a lot of real charm to it. I've only ever seen one other film from Paul Cox, a movie that came out in 2000 called Innocence. And I got, a, I think, a larger art house release. I'm kind of ignorant of the rest of his work, but now having seen this one, I'd be really interested in, in seeing uh, more of what he's done. Wendy Hughes is great in this. Norman Kay is great in this. It really is worth, if you have a chance, tracking it down. It is a charming, charming, tiny movie. It just wants to sit down next to you and win you over. We're sticking in the art house, Drew. There's a lot of art house this week. We are, as, as I like to call uh, us, erudit. Erudit means intelligent, and that's what we am. And now let us delve into a little-known French film called Moon in the Gutter. I think there's a great version of this movie maybe out there somewhere, but we'll never see it. And it's a shame. I feel like we didn't spend a lot of time talking about Diva when we did the did that on the show, and I regret that. It's a great movie. Jean-Jacques Benet was coming off of the success of Diva, and this is Diva was a movie that played around the world. Like it did really well everywhere it went. So he had a lot of clout walking into this next movie. Uh, he adapted an American novel, and he wanted to do a film noir, and he wanted to do it with this great cast. There's a four-hour version of this movie that he turned in. The movie that exists now is two hours. We'll never, ever see a restoration. And what exists now doesn't really work. I had trouble sticking with this one, man. And you know, we've talked about this before. When I have trouble sticking with a, a foreign film of this era, half of me is, is the film just not that good? It's not speaking to me? Or is it me? I, I think this one is, it, it has some great moments. Natasha Kinski's in it. Victoria Abril in one of her first performances. And uh, a likable Gerard Depardieu. And man, it's gorgeous. It's it's like seedy. There's a really seedy quality to it, but kind of like with um, One from the Heart, it's built in this artificial world. It's beautifully made, but yeah, it just doesn't add up. And you get the feeling there's chunks of story and character missing where you don't really know who these people are at all. They're just types and uh, sort of iconography. Drew, that's a fancy word. Let's stick around at the art house for at least one more movie. How about that? Because, uh, you know, we got some schlock to get to, but... This decade, if you wandered through an art house in the 1980s, you were definitely going to hit a Merchant Ivory production. Uh, uh, and we also have to give fair credit to their frequent, frequent collaborator, screenwriter Ruth Prar Javala. I believe that's how it's pronounced. And everybody mentions Merchant Ivory, Merchant Ivory, and they deserve a lot of credit. But she wrote almost all of their great films. Noteworthy is Heat and Dust. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I was thinking how India changes people. Just just in subtle ways. You're right. She is as important to who they are as they are. She is as much a part of their success. Um, this was a novel of hers first that came out in the mid-70s. She'd already been working with them by that point. And then she adapted her own novel for the film. Greta Scacchi stars here as a woman named Olivia uh, who traveled to India in the 20s. And then Julie Christie is a woman living now, or in the 80s, who is looking into the story of her great yeah. aunt. So it's kind of a cool two-headed character piece. And I found one of the stories much more interesting than the other, but they do complement one another really well. It's not Julie Christie's fault. It's just that it's a, it's a much more passive role. She's reading about this woman who has this life-changing experience. And it's a great role for Greta Scacchi, who I think makes a really strong impression in it. There's a romantic sense of time and place uh, for the stuff about India in the 20s. It also seems pretty clear-eyed about the way women were treated and about the way homosexuality was kept quiet. And it feels defining in a lot of ways from Merchant Ivory. The movies we're going to see from this point on from them feel like they kind of started with this one. Uh, their earlier work feels to me a little more loose and experimental and very art housey, and this feels more like a movie movie that just happens to be somewhat restrained and articulate. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. If you were to like want to break down the Merchant Ivory Productions timeline, you could either start from this film and move forward. Or start from this film and move backwards. I do like also, uh, in both her book and the film, um, Am Forrester is somebody who they adapted frequently and they clearly loved. And Room with a View is their next film and based on his work. Um, this film is, although not based on anything he wrote, a tribute to him. And there's a lot of Am Forrester's actual personal biography that's been baked into the characters in this film. So it's just, it's a really interesting sort of puzzle box if you are interested in how she adapted his work. Clearly, she loved him dearly and loved like his life as well and who he was as an artist. So uh, there's a great deal of affection in the creation of this movie. Uh, and now we move on to a film very similar in many ways to Heat and Dust. I agree. I, I actually got them confused when I had my notes originally. I totally did. And, and, and if anybody else, if this ever happened to anybody else, let us know. If anybody has ever confused Heat and Dust with Sam Furstenberg's Revenge of the Ninja, starring martial arts master Sho Kosugi and his son Kane Kosugi, six-year-old world karate champion. Revenge of the Ninja. The great martial arts explosion of the 80s comes to America with full force. Revenge of the Ninja, rated R. Yeah, all right, let's just say it. Oh I want to say it out loud because it's the coolest name in the history of martial arts cinema. Shokasugi. Shokasugi. Who? Uh, no, no. Let's, I'm going to say it one more time. <clears throat> Shokasugi. Love it. He returns from a semi sequel to Enter the Ninja, and I'm telling you, Drew, if you've ever ever wanted to see a ninja movie that takes place in Salt Lake City, Utah, this is the one. Yeah. I realized watching this movie that my dad can no longer make fun of anything I watch because my dad took these movies really seriously. He loved ninja films, this old genre. Shokasugi was a big deal in my house. I remember him going to see this one. We owned a tape that had Enter the Ninja and this on it. And I look at this and I'm like, this is sillier than anything that I watch. That is sillier than Police Academy 5. It's 
so ridiculous. And I love the way they treat ninjas. Ninjas just run around doing all sorts of stuff. They have ninjas doing warehouse work in this movie. Ninjas helping old ladies cross the street. <laughs> How about the lead in this, the white ninja? Oh, yeah. And um, and I Shokasugi in this movie makes Chuck Norris look positively Brando-esque in terms of acting ability. And no, he's not an actor. He's a martial arts master. I will say this. I think Kasugi actually got better. I think he's a guy who later on, once he had been in front of cameras for a while and he had done a lot of time on sets, I think he actually did get decent. He got good at showing up and he was fine in the movies and he was a better actor. This is at a point where he just looks spooked by the camera. It's just one of those. It's just an early film for a guy who really was not comfortable. These are the these films really helped Canon become what it would be in a few years, a nonstop monolith of endless schlock. And then our next one. It's funny. We mentioned Jonah uh, Rodriguez at the beginning of this, uh, they're doing the live Mystery Science Theater tour this summer with him and Joel, and they're alternating two films that they're going to be doing, and one of them is our next movie, which is... Deathstalker. Journey to an age of great kingdoms. An age of awesome magic. Where one man sought the key to the ultimate power. <laughs> The greatest challenge. The greatest adventure. The most legendary hero of them all. The man they called Deathstalker. The last great warrior king. Starring Richard Hill and Bobby Bennett. Oh boy. I have an anecdote. Do you remember during the 1980s, if you were to go to a movie in an AMC theater, you would frequently see a pre-show slideshow. Oh, sure. And the slideshow frequently would have, here's your popcorn thing, here's your soda thing, here's like your your local business. Here's the hot dog place next door. Right, yes. And a lot of them would be slides for upcoming movies. And this film's poster art with a giant monster holding a woman and it said, Barbie Benton, Richard Brooker. And I'm like, Barbie Benton from Hospital Massacre? Richard Brooker? He played... Jason in Friday the 13th Part 3. I actually knew those names. Uh, and then I was truly disappointed when Deathstalker never came to my local theater. Oh, are you still disappointed now that you've seen it? No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This was the first of a shit ton of movies that Roger Corman produced in Argentina. And it is, it's so weird to me looking at, Movies from different regions, because even if the movies aren't connected by creative staff or writers or directors or whatever, you start to get signatures. And this doesn't feel like Italian sword and sorcery. There's a signature to those movies. And I'll give Deathstalker this. It didn't feel like all of those. Uh, Corman definitely brought his own distinct uh, flavor of schlock. Is it slightly better uh, production value wise? Perhaps, but not much. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of it was you lean on, you hire women who have been in Playboy and which honestly, when you're in the mid eighties, sword and sorcery movies were mainly thought of as van art. And most van art had ridiculously proportioned people, both male and female. So I feel like these movies live up to what people thought fantasy was supposed to be in that era. It's not really what I wanted, but it's, it is what they sold. So yeah, Lana Clarkson was the star and, and, uh, she, Roger Corman would give her more work. She would later star as Barbarian Queen. Last month, we talked about freaking Yor, the hunter from the future. And 
forgive me, universe, but Deathstalker is an improvement over that. This one and our next film are examples of movies that probably benefit from where they were shot and how they were shot because there's just an energy to them that makes them at least watchable program junk. Like there, there's something about them that there's a little bit of a snap to what's going on. So yeah, not great, but Death Stalker was watchable. I certainly didn't, uh, I wasn't offended by the time that I spent watching it. And it's, it is a case where, yeah, it doesn't look exactly like the poster, but the poster's not wildly mis-selling the movie. It bears mentioning that if you do uh, dig up Deathstalker, there are uh, three progressively sillier sequels that uh, that move on. And speaking of silly sequels, Drew, welcome back. Mark Gregory as Trash. It's time to escape from the Bronx. Drew, let's escape from the Bronx. Let's go. <laughs> this movie stonks. The authorities declare the Bronx a high-risk zone. There's only one alternative. Destroy it. Destroy it. Escape from the Bronx. It it is nowhere near as um, moderately fun. As its predecessor, it is a, a sequel to 1990 The Bronx Warriors, And, ironically, it's also known overseas as Escape 2000, which bears something in common with the next film we're about to cover. But, Drew, would you call this film an improvement over 1990 The Bronx Warriors? And do you think Brian Salisbury, our resident post-apocalyptic expert, would agree with you? I do not think it is an improvement. I think The Bronx Warriors is a better film. And I think this one is a very weird movie. I like the idea that it's a class warfare film. And I think the Italian fantasy stuff and the Italian horror stuff, they leaned into class warfare more readily because I think it's an idea they were more comfortable with. The entire idea here is that the Bronx is now valuable real estate that they want to uh, clean out and start over with. And so they have to basically manufacture a reason to get everybody out of the Bronx. And it's the the upper class cleansing the lower class movie. So there's there's a real sense that it's uh, us against them in this one. If you like the first one, you might like 40% chance you like this one. No, that's not true. Because if you like the first one, your threshold for this schlock is pretty high. And you, of course, want to see the sequel. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of this stuff anymore. I, I'm glad that we've been able to like run through these and there's still a few more. But for the most part, I'm glad that we're done because even when they're creative and have fun moments or, or you know, noteworthy uh, B actors, there's only so much fun you can have with people who are like just copying other people. This isn't ludicrous enough. I actually wish this movie was a little more outrageous or ridiculous because I think that's when he works well. All right. So um, now we're going to move from our uh, last film, Escape 2000, to our next film, Escape 2000. Wait, what? Are you telling me we have two films called Escape 2000 in the same month? I am. And in fact, it's one of those cases where they are both uh, from fairly well-known exploitation mavens, just from totally different parts of the world. Uh, Escape 2000 is probably better known as Turkey Shoot, and it is also probably one of the best-known films from schlockmaster extraordinaire Brian Trenchard Smith. The government calls us traitors or deviants because we oppose its ideology. And then it tries to wipe us out because we believe that we have the right to be ourselves. Then it justifies its policies by talking of uh, work ethic, 
community obedience, social conformity. But what it's really saying is accept slavery or die. The time has come to fight back. God, don't give up! Don't give up! Fight for yourself! Fight for your Trump! Uh, again, class warfare. We're looking at a movie where the rich hunt the poor, and uh, it's pretty much just that simple. Not so much just the hunting, but also a uh, industrial prison co- setting. So it's dealing with, like Drew said, the class warfare, not just in as much as the haves killing the have-nots, but it's also dealing with incarceration and unfair exploitation of rights. But the fun thing about these films is that you can find that minor, simple, shallow subtext, but... This is a wildly sleazy, over-the-top, violent, (laughs) gory, nutty, bad acting, bad special effects, undeniably entertaining, I won't say throughout, but for large parts of Escape 2000. I enjoyed it as a kid. I rolled my eyes a lot at at it as an adult. It is scummy, uh, but kind of fun. There's one bit where the prisoners are all lined up. And uh, this woman is having sort of a emotional breakdown. And Roger Ward, who is a giant, bald, hulking, the chief guard in the camp, is shadow boxing at her the entire time she's trying to talk. And it's such a dick move. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I watched the scene and I didn't give that a second thought. And now, like, picturing it again and you describing it, I'm laughing now. I there's a lot of that stuff, though. Trenchard Smith has a real energy for this kind of thing. We're going to get to a couple of his, his other films, including one later this year that I really like. I'm fond of him, and I would say definitely hunt down Turkey Shoot if you feel like it. And now, oh boy, now we move on to a film that horror fans never get tired of discovering. I am fortunate in that I was among the first wave who discovered this on VHS via Vestron, probably 1985. I still see horror fans today who hop on Twitter and say, I was not prepared for Pieces. Warning, what you will see in the movie Pieces cannot be revealed, cannot be described, cannot even be imagined. And you don't have to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre. Pieces, it's exactly what you think it is. Pieces. Absolutely no one under 17 will be admitted. There were two films that we do this that we're reviewing this month where I took scenes out of context just to show Toshi, and you know which scene I showed him from pieces. Oh, the Kung Fu, the out of nowhere Kung Fu. Yeah, guy, yeah. My, my Kung Fu professor. But the, the movie is, it is such a no prisoners taken take on the slasher who gets formed in childhood. Because that opening scene, man, there are no fucks left to give by the end of that opening scene. And then the movie gets crazier from there this is a spanish film i don't know of many spanish slasher films that made it to america it's almost like someone saying you know what we don't get many shots if this is gonna if we're gonna make a spanish slasher movie we're gonna punch the living shit out of it yeah this is this is the infamous tagline you don't have to go to texas for a chainsaw massacre it is about a fractured young boy who has weird sex issues thanks to his freaky mother <laughs> um and he goes on a horrible rampage not just with a chainsaw but with all sorts of crazy weapons uh, like most slashers of the day it does attack kind of a who done it vibe but it seems to do it in such a silly way i can't help but think it was meant to be satirical it is a cult classic of the highest degree i would not call it a well made film in many ways do not read about the ending if you've never seen it. Drew, do you know the Spanish title? No, what is the Spanish title? Mil Gritos Tiene La Noche. 
Something of the Night. The Night has a thousand screams. I love that. As Chainsaw Massacre ripoffs go, very few of them use the chainsaw as much as this one does. Um, This movie is not afraid of red meat. This movie is not afraid of just being incredibly sleazy with the sex stuff. The running motif of the puzzle that's being put together is ridiculous and hilarious. And it is just a goofball movie. And Christopher George and Linda Day George show up in this. Where wouldn't they go? To make a low-end horror movie, what was their day rate? That's what was cracking me up, is that both of these movies, they're not really connected to each other in the movies either. They just happen to both be in both films, and it must have been quite the life to just roll around, show up on these sets, have no idea what you were there to do, and then later, show up in a theater, and you're in pieces. And Paul L. Smith, from our beloved Popeye, Bluto, shows up in this thing and is once again used as a visual punchline because that's really all directors saw with his character should be called red herring i don't want to oversell it but i mean pieces seems like the kind of thing that you and i both do this say you and i go to a fantasia film festival we see eight horror movies and we saw something this over the top we're not saying it's a brilliant movie but what we're saying is it's so bizarre and over the top and gory and wacky that horror fans should check it out definitely um, and, you know, Slug sounds like something that could have been written by Marjorie Kennan Rawlings. <laughs> you. We would be the only podcast in history that ever had to make a segue between Pieces and Cross Creek. If I can't write my own honest thoughts and feelings, then I'm no author. Producer Robert Radnitz and director Martin Ritt present Academy Award-winning actress Mary Steenburgen in a motion picture experience to be treasured forever. Miss Rollins, we did good. We did magnificently. This is an earnest biography of author Marjorie Rawlings, uh, the author of The Yearling, uh, probably her best known work. And it is slow moving, but appealing with colorful characters and good performances. Drew? She was a journalist and there came a point in her life where she just gave it all up and decided to go write. Now, I envy her goals because if I were going to do that, just go find a place to write and be off the grid. It would not be the goddamn Florida Everglades. That's for sure. This is our first, I'm pretty sure this is our first Martin Ritt film for the decade. It won't be our last. Martin Ritt is one of those guys, theater guy first, came from New York, got caught up in the Red Scare and got blacklisted from studios for a while, came back into filmmaking in the 50s after he went back to theater, and most of his work comes from a place of really strong social conscience. He made movies like The Outrage and The Great White Hope. Uh, The Front was one of the first films to really deal with the blacklist. It was the movie that taught me the most of what I... Uh, my first real knowledge of the blacklist came from the front. Well, and I think for Hollywood, that was the first time they really uh, admitted what had happened and kind of dealt with it. And then Norma Ray won Sally Fielder Oscar. So this was his first film since Norma Ray. And um, it's a pretty smart, unsentimental film. I think what it really benefits from in the Oscars certainly nominated the crap out of this movie for performances. Mary Steenburgen is terrific, as always. I think... Filmmakers just gave her a lot of room to run, and she really responded almost every time. Alfre Woodard, same way, awesome in this, and oh my god, Rip Torn kills it in this film. Uh, yeah, Rip Torn and Alfre Woodard both nominated. I'm, I was surprised to read uh, that that uh, Miss Steenbergen was not nominated. I know, that's crazy. Uh, and Peter Coyote, also as her uh, potential new beau, is fantastic as well. 
every character in this film is well written and well performed. I had a, I just had a good time. I never would have watched this as a kid. This would have been the equivalent of like a Hallmark Channel or a Lifetime Channel movie. Were it not for this podcast, I would have never seen Cross Creek, and I liked it. Nominated for two major acting categories, uh, clearly well liked. Four nominations overall, clearly well liked by the Oscars. When was the last time you heard anybody mention Cross Creek? You when you introduced it five minutes ago. It's so weird to me the way that happens. Like the Oscars, everybody gets so hung up on it during the year. But ultimately, man, films rise or fall based on whatever weird mix of things. And a movie that was as well-liked and as well-regarded as this kind of disappears. And it's a shame, it, if for no other reason. I know Rip Torn sounds like he was a handful on any set he ever worked on. He is great in this. Yeah, he's the definition of a scene stealer. I think it's a great film for anybody who wants to write. It works just as a melodrama, but it also works as a piece on like finding your voice. Scott, what's next? A piece of crap. <laughs> it's a uh, often discussed somewhat iconic 80s film that I think a lot of people believe is a good film and I think a lot of people have actually failed to watch Eddie and the Cruisers I want something great I want something that nobody's ever done before in 1964 Eddie Wilson had the hottest rock and roll band in the country then one night his car went off a dark New Jersey bridge his body was never found. You don't really think Eddie's still alive, do you? I think Eddie and the Cruisers is a real case of cable saving something because it had tanked in the box office. And then MTV played the song incessantly. Down the docks of town. It was on every 10 minutes for like six months. This was a, a film I barely remembered. And I was more than happy to sit down and be like, oh, whoa, Ellen Barkin, Joe Pandeliano. It's kind of a, a fable about a rock and roll, a fictional rock and roll star who disappeared and may have died, but may actually have not. And it's them trying to track down his second album and what happened to it. And da da da. It's so weirdly plotted and confusingly constructed like it's a relatively simple story and it, they seem to like they wanted to edit it into like some some kind of artsy direction and it just becomes kind of incoherent and clunky tom berenger having a big month uh certainly uh, this was not a small month for mr berenger but he's supposed to be kind of our eyes and ears leading us through this thing they took some james dean they took a little bit of jim morrison and they took a little bit of brian wilson and they tried to put them all together into this character who he was a genius who was going to push the whole rock and roll sound forward i also got a distinct eddie deason vibe yeah wow um, <laughs> I was annoyed with this film within 15 minutes and I got more annoyed as it went on. Like when I watched the survivors, I was a little nervous because I thought maybe I wouldn't like it as much. And then as it movie went on, I'm like, yeah, yeah, go. I'm liking you. I'm yeah. You're, you're winning me over. And this movie was just the opposite. Like, no, this is dumb. They wouldn't say this. They wouldn't do that. What happened to that character? Why are they doing this? Where are they going? What's that thing on the beach? Wow. The guy who directed this, Martin Davidson, co-wrote it and came from the music industry. And his whole thing was he was trying to put all of the mythology of the music industry's last 25 years into one film, it's a colossal mess. None of it makes any sense. None of it really works. And it ultimately boils down to Eddie wanted creative freedom, didn't get it, and so he, quote, killed himself. I don't know. That seems like a really ridiculous lead character for us to care about as they untie the knot of what happened to him. Oh, God. The last scene, last two scenes are alternately surprising and ridiculous, 
I truly believe that part of the reason people have any fondness for Eddie and the Cruisers is because they're comparing it favorably to its wildly inept sequel. Well, and this was, I think this is a case where it didn't play very well in theaters. Then it went on to HBO, it was nonstop on HBO. So people thought that they liked it, but it's a case where you got it right the first time. You just saw it a lot, that's all. It doesn't mean you liked it. It was just on a lot, folks. And speaking of films that have a lot of music in them, (laughs) I'm looking forward to discussing the very avant-garde tone poem that is... Experience a remarkable film event, a fusion of images and sound. The inspired collaboration of director Godfrey Reggio, composer Philip Glass, and cinematographer Ron Fricke. A powerful evocation of life out of balance. Francis Ford Coppola presents Koyan Eskatsi. Now, Drew, here's my theory. These movies were able, he made two sequels after this, and this movie was able to strike a chord because it showed up at the exact right time. It is in many ways a very good example of a feature-length rock video just when MTV was taking off. I am a Koyaanisqatsi fan, and I have been since, I think, 85 is when I saw it the first time. It was on PBS, and I taped it. I took three or four runs at it before I made it all the way through. And I wasn't sure what I thought of it as I kept chipping away at it. And then I just started watching it. And then I would just put it on. And then I kind of fell into it. And I love Koyaanisqatsi. I think it is a beautiful piece about the world as he... uh, Godfrey Reggio is the director of the film, and uh, it was largely financed thanks to uh, Francis Coppola and American Zoetrope. He was a monk. This is a prayer. This is a prayer for a world that he believes is is not working properly. And he, he superimposes the natural world and the order of the natural world as mysterious and as grand as it is with what we have done to the surface of it, the things that we've built, the way we carve away at the planet, the way we blow things up, the way we stack stuff on top the way we depersonalize ourselves uh, by living in this world that is one big blinking noisy light. Uh, it's, it's scored by Philip Glass. Oh, God. I, I truly believe that uh, if something like this had come out in the 60s, it, it would barely be uh, register as a blip. It just seemed to show up at the exact right time uh, and where audiences were willing to take a, a chance on something that wasn't narratively driven. Uh, it was more so just a combination of beautiful images and beautiful music. I don't know if it's the kind of thing you would uh, turn on, like an album that you really like, but I could see it being that kind of film. Most of the language of television commercials for the mid to late 80s started with Godfrey Reggio in this movie. There are hundreds, if not thousands of television commercials that might as well literally just be footage from this movie. It's amazing how many people took the language of what he did, the vocabulary, the specific That's shots. That's interesting. I, I wrote in my notes like as a progenitor of quality music videos, and if you were to extrapolate to like and dig up like the hundred most successful television commercials of the 1980s, you definitely would see a visual acuity between those two. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and I think it's one of those things that every filmmaker has seen. 
whether they ever quote it or not, Koyanis Kati is something that kind of feels like fundamental vocabulary you have to at some point grapple with and learn. It's going to be exciting to see the way this thing trickles into everything we discuss from this point on. There's a point at which people really start actively quoting it. You know, and that that happens. Our next film is one giant quote, essentially, from both screenwriter and director. Uh, They'd worked together before. This was supposed to be part two of a trilogy that never quite came together, but certainly it is worth good conversation here about Strange Invaders. In 1958, an alien race invaded the little town of Centerville, Illinois. They took on the appearance of regular U.S. citizens. Strange Invaders has arrived, and it's the most fun you've had since the 50s. Yeah, I dug this. Drew and I covered in a previous episode a film called Strange Behavior. Uh, Like Drew said, there was meant to be a trilogy of uh, sequels in spirit, not necessarily connective plots. Uh, But as you remember, Strange Behavior, it was an Australian shot, American set horror film. Uh, And this is a slice of 1950s uh, alien invasion combined with a slightly more cynical 80s approach in which a college professor visits a small town and slowly comes to realize that most or if not all of the citizens are actually aliens in disguise. I've had a lot of conversations about this movie with Bill Condon uh, because I've been lucky enough to know him and his partner, Jack, for a long time. And Bill's one of those guys, he's known for like dream girls in Chicago. And uh, certainly he is as enthusiastic a student of the musical genre as I've ever met. Like he freaking eats and breathes musicals. And I think there's a reason he's made so many. But he is a genre nerd. Uh, Bill's film collection is crazy. Uh, When you talk about monster movies or you talk about old genre, he'll jump right in and he has got strong opinions on all of it. And clearly he and Michael Laughlin love the 50s monster movies and the alien invasion movies. And there's a lot of vibe. Kenneth Toby from uh, The Thing shows up in this. and Oh, so many people. there's There's a lot of love built into this thing just in terms of who they wanted to cast and images they wanted to get into the film. I don't think it it's particularly compelling as a movie. Yeah, I, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And man, there's so much to like about this movie. The tone, the, even the plot is enjoyably simple, but it just, it drops a few balls. Most of the performance is good enough that you're, you're willing to forgive like some slow spots, some plot holes. I'm happy to just watch Paul Lamatt and Nancy Allen run around. Yes, Paul Lamatt, Nancy Allen, Michael Lerner, Wallace Shawn, Louise Fletcher, uh, there's so many good people, and June Lockhart is in this movie. <laughs> and I think the 1950s vibe is what they nail pretty well. It might be the when they try to extrapolate that into 80s paranoia thriller, where maybe it stumbles a little bit. Um, I do like the aliens themselves. I like the final reveal. I think there's some really nice makeup work in it. It's got its heart in the right place. It is a film uh, that is made with great fondness, and I feel like... They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to market a gentle homage to something. And they sold it like as it's going to be really, it's going to rock your world. Strange Invaders. It's not that. In the 80s, there were like three ways to do this kind of homage. There were Strange Invaders, which probably would have played better as an Amazing Stories episode. There's The Blob, which is to make it a a little rougher and a little nastier. And then there's like when Toby Hooper did Invaders from Mars, which is just kind of perfunctory and obvious. I would take Strange Invaders over that one. 
I think we both like it and both wish it was slightly a little bit more clever so we could say we love it. Let's move from uh, an affectionate homage to 50s sci-fi to what feels like a relic from 1975 that somehow got held up till 1983, directed by the very interesting special effects master Douglas Trumbull, Brainstorm. Brainstorm, a new dimension in motion picture entertainment. Rated PG. Yeah, you want to talk about a film that I wish I loved. Yeah. Because I've, uh, I've had a lot of fondness for Brainstorm since 1983, and I've always kind of I, It's around. so funny. I, my question, I don't do this on every movie now, but I really was going to ask you, have you seen Brainstorm as a kid? Because I only saw it two weeks ago. See, I was really taken with it. And I part of it was this was the era where I was really reading Starlog religiously, and I was I, so I knew a lot walking into theaters. And they had some great articles about ShowScan and about Douglas Trouble trying to do the new projection processes and how this was supposed to be the debut of ShowScan, which was bigger than 70 millimeter, bigger than IMAX is now. And it was going to be like the middle of the screen would be all the stuff with the characters and the story. And then whenever you went into the brainstorm footage, it would pop out to the giant screen. So you would feel like you were falling into it. I saw it 70 millimeter and they projected it somewhat like that, but he never got ShowScan off the ground. So I think this whole thing that he had designed this movie to be shown in was just as important to him as the movie itself. And that's the problem. Because there are great ideas in this. And I think the first half of this film, I actually showed it to Lisa when we sat down to watch it this week because she'd never seen it. And I was of the opinion, okay, I've always been fond of it. I've always had this affection for it. Let me show it to somebody else and see how it plays. It still has one of my very favorite moments of Chris Walken's whole career. When he goes to Natalie Wood, they're getting divorced and he realizes that he's going to lose her. And so he puts on the brainstorm thing and he thinks about their whole marriage and then he brings her that recording. She says, what is this? And he says, it's me. And that it's me might be one of the most sincere deliveries and and kind of a devastating emotional moment. And I wish the whole movie played with this machine as smartly and as and in such a intelligent way. Douglas Trumbull, not a terrible director from what I saw. And clearly knows how to, you know, create visual images uh, for a movie. The guy ha- is an Oscar-winning special effects designer. Wasn't all that impressed with him as a screenwriter. Uh, it seems like it wants to be a thriller about scientists playing God. I, as I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking, how did the producers of Brainstorm not sue the creators of Flatliners? The hook is, of course, uh, one of the researchers has a heart attack, realizes she's about to die, and puts the thing on and starts recording. And it's what do you do with that recording that keeps going well after she died. So suddenly there is proof of what happens after death. And that recording becomes the hot, but will he play it? Will he put it on? Will they like, I get the shape of this movie then. Okay. It's a government thriller. They want to take the tape and bury it, or they want to use the technology a different way, but the movie never figures out what movie it is. Is it that movie where they're chasing him? No, around exactly. Get the tape? Is it like a Michael Crichton thriller or is it a drama? Uh, like the one we saw about them creating the artificial heart, which is it? Well, and it's funny that you would say that about flatliners because that year when flatliners came out, there were a lot of films that were sort of these metaphysical thrillers 
one of the ones that was in direct uh, sort of competition was that was Jacob's Ladder, which was written by Bruce Joel Rubin, who wrote the original story for Brainstorm. And I got to wonder if there's a Bruce Joel Rubin version of this that deals more head on with the implications of that tape and what it shows and what everybody wants it for, because it feels like that's what Bruce Joel Rubin does so well in stuff like Ghost or Jacob's Ladder. Like he was that writer. Christopher Walken is quite good. The guy doesn't do a whole lot of leads, and we'll get to one of his fantastic leads in a few months. Uh, Louise Fletcher, also in Strange Invaders. She pops up, and you instantly know you're going to get something good. Uh, this would be the final film, Natalie Wood. She she uh, drowned while this film was being shot. Most of her performance had been shot already. Yeah, you, you, you wonder what the film actually was going to be. I can't imagine working under that shadow. Like, you'd lose Natalie Wood, for God's sake. Not just... It's got to be hard losing any actor, but you've been working with this icon who is such a um, huge part of the movie. She is central to whether or not this film works. To lose her before you're finished, I, I wouldn't know how to finish the thing. Yeah, apparently the, her sister came on to do some body double work for some reshoots. Part of you wants to say, oh my God, that's such a tragedy. Just bury the film. It shouldn't be seen. Who cares anymore? On the other hand, you know, she's not bad in the film. You know, she gives a pretty decent performance. No, the best stuff is between her and It would be a shame to, like, just throw her last performance away. And it is worth seeing to see the the sequences that he shows once Walken finally plays that tape. And what do they imagine that like? And that was, I think, a big part of what sold me on it originally. And those sequences are interesting. It's It's a neat approach. And then next up, this is a movie that I didn't see as a kid that I always had one idea about. And now that I've finally seen the film, I was pretty wrong. It's not what I thought it was. And I ended up really kind of enjoying educating Rita. Meet Rita. I'm a hairdresser. Oh, dear. Not by choice. She'd rather be a student. Do you know Yates? The Wine Lodge. But with a husband who wants something else. You need a baby. A tutor that's tipsy. And a faculty that's fooling around. She's about to learn more than she's planned on. This is madness. Educating Rita, rated PG. Check newspapers for a theater near you. I had never seen this either. Uh, unlike you, I pretty much knew exactly what it was. Did you think it was a romance? Is that what you expected? I think I thought it was going to be a little more cutesy, and um, and she was going to be more sassy. Rita comes in and changes everybody, and it's not that at all. I was quite taken by how unsparing they are on Michael Caine's character, who I thought they were going to let off the hook and make just a charming alcoholic reprobate. And yeah, no. On paper, it's a very standard premise. Julie Walters is a housewife who feels like uh, she doesn't have her dreams are not going anywhere. She's just kind of stuck in a rut. And she decides that she wants to go to college to study writing. And, of course, she butts heads with a very uh, prickly, demanding professor, as played by Michael Caine. Uh, As things progress, he learns just as much from her as she wanted to learn from him. And that is the most facile and pat version. But that is what the film is about. And it's in the performances. These actors are so great that it doesn't matter that if you know or where 90% of the film is going. The performances and the nuances of the characters are what make Educating Rita such a charming movie. But the things she teaches him are not, uh, you don't need to drink and you can be fine and you, you're going to be happy and your life is going to be great. It's more... If you're a miserable son of a bitch and you've decided to accept your fate and just sit here and wither, 
that's fine, but get out of my way because I I came here to be better than I am and you're not going to make fun of me and you're not going to stop me and you're not going to take it from me. I swear to God, Drew, with two lesser actors, this movie would be, we'd be done talking about it by now. Yeah, and look, Lewis Gilbert, not a director that I think is like nonstop amazing and everything he did was great. His James Bond work is not my favorite James Bond work. Uh, I like Spy Love Me. I hate Moonraker. But he's one of those guys who uh, really is material dependent. He had to have a great screenplay to really pull it off. And I think this is a case where Michael Caine came in swinging. Michael Caine knew what he, he had going. And he had enough of a relationship with Lewis Gilbert because of Alfie that he knew how to give Caine room to really be iconic Michael Caine. And when you do that, Michael Caine would show up and give you everything. And then she's just the discovery. She's great. And we ought, by this point, you know, any film fan who will pay attention to British cinema and also American cinema, knows who Julie Walters is. This was it. It just wasn't on my radar at 13. And seeing it now, I get why. I would not have appreciated any of the nuance of this. But I think it's a delightful film. And I think really it explains why she, after this, became a mainstay. You look at this and you know she's a powerhouse. She can do whatever she wants. She's great. Drew, let's uh, let's end this overall not all that impressive month with arguably the biggest film of the month and a film that I believe has been considered uh, the defining film of the baby boomer generation. Would you agree with that? I would, and I don't know that they're going to be terribly happy about that if they ever go back and really look at it. Eight old friends who haven't seen each other in a long time are getting together for a weekend they'll remember for years. So how's your life? Oh, great. How's yours? Not so great. Oh, we're telling truth. Meg's turned on. Oh, I wanted that. Karen's ticked off. For 15 years, you've acted like I'm the one you really wanted, and you've made sure that everybody knew it. Nick seemed red. It was easy back then. No one ever had a cushier birth than we did. It's not surprising our friendship could survive that. Sam's feeling blue. I don't know what people think about me. I don't know why they like me, even if they do like me. You don't have that problem here. You know I don't like you. <laughs> Sarah's growing up. I can always be counted on to do the right thing. It's a disgusting curse. And Harold's winding down. Getting away from you people is the best thing ever happened to me. I mean, how much sex, fun, friendship can one man take? So how come they're all having so much fun? Because they have each other. The Big Chill, rated R. Now, let's just rattle these off, okay? Because a lot of these people were not that well-known. They had done a handful of things or were just character actors. Every one of these people would go on to better things uh, because of this movie. Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt, Kevin Kline, Mary Kay Place, Meg Tilly, and Joe Beth Williams. There's not one weak link in that cast. And they gather for a weekend, according to the poster, I believe, it is a weekend of love, drinking, drugs, friendship, sex, and very popular Motown songs. What makes the film, I I think, really wonderful is there is a sense of life lived around the edges of it. Every one of these characters feels fully realized to me. Every one of them could be the lead of the movie. Every one of them is clearly loved by Lawrence Kasdan and Barbara Benedict, who co-wrote the film. It's funny, uh, for fans of Solo, when you see this movie, the little boy in the bathtub at the beginning who sings, Jeremiah was a bullfrog with Kevin Klein. that's John Kasdan, who co-wrote Solo with his father, Lawrence Kasdan. So <laughs> that's funny. enjoy that, kids. Uh, I saw this film in the theater when it came out. I saw it with my aunts. 
And the night it came out, they were going to go no matter what. They already had read reviews and they knew what it was. And they were like, why would you want to go? And I'm like, I'm, it's going to be good. It's Lawrence Kasdan. And he wrote uh, Lord, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire Strikes Back. And I love those. So this will be great. And I want to go. And I really enjoyed it. I didn't get it. Looking at it now, I get why the film was a monster, monster, monster hit. And I find it fascinating because it's really lacerating about the baby boomers. It's not a fond portrait. It's well, it's often very funny. Lawrence Kasdan is a great writer of gags for like written for these ca- actors. Like you could tell which type gets what kind of joke, and every actor is fantastic in this movie. It definitely taps into that group camaraderie. Whether you're 12 years old at summer camp, or 18 years old in a youth group, or 25 and you go on a a work retreat with 15 workers for two weeks and become like best friends, it really nails that group camaraderie and the inside jokes that might seem obnoxious to the outside viewer, but they're nothing but warmth and affection to people inside the group. Does the film kind of climb up its own ass a little bit about these people. Well, I think I think the film kind of, it shows that even at this point, and this was the beginning of sort of the baby boomer industry, where everything was about indulging them and about massaging their, their feelings about the 60s. And, oh, weren't the 60s great? I've said this before. I didn't live through it through the 60s, but I have 60s flashbacks because baby boomers jammed it up my fucking ass for 20 years, and what I like about the big chill is it does not let them off the hook for the the way they were then and for the way they've started to romanticize it. Frequently in the big chill, there are moments where you see them knock down their memories of how great it all was by clarifying, well, no, it was really this. And I think that's what people missed about The Big Chill. The Big Chill started the industry of, oh, no, the 60s were amazing and we were amazing because we lived through them. Very few people also followed through to the part of, and it's probably why this guy killed himself and why some of us are train wrecks. I saw somebody uh, earlier today on Twitter, and it's funny that stuff we're talking about still getting referenced constantly. And somebody mentioned the big chill and they said, I feel like most of Jeff Goldblum's Hollywood career is him getting revenge on them for casting him as the guy no one wanted to fuck in the big chill, (laughs) which is a very astute observation. And it's, he's hilarious in this as the slimy guy who can't stop touching the dead guy's girlfriend. Meg Tilly is terrific as the girl who is so aware of what's going on. There's not 10 seconds. She's fooled by him. This was not a self-aware thing of him doing that. This was a screenwriter saying this is how some guys act and they need to be like they're still his friend and he has to be put in his place and corrected. Doesn't make him a horrible, fractured person. But this is something that needs they all have their little neuroses and some of them are serious and some of them are not. And some of them are important and some of them are trivial. You watch it. and You're like, okay, maybe I can't relate with this era or this age, but I can relate with these human foibles, with these human needs and wants. Great trivia footnote, Kevin Klein, when they were doing the auditions for this movie, Klein had gotten cast pretty early on, and they were reading people for the role of Chloe, and they brought in a young actress named Phoebe Cates, who read with him for the part and did not get it, but uh, that was where they met and ended up uh, getting married. Are they still married today? They sure are. They are one of the Hollywood success stories, and I think it's a really sweet way to have met is what's great is when I saw it again this time and I thought about Phoebe Cates playing the role, she would have crushed it. She would have been great in this movie. Oh, absolutely. But it's a great Meg Tilly performance. I love how she watches the Friends and kind of, because she's not one of them, 
She's kind of outside just watching, yeah, and she's fascinated by all the dynamics and all the weird shit going on, and it's a great William Hurt role. He's from outer space in it. She also gets a little bit fed up and annoyed with them, which kind of counters what the audience feels a couple times, where it becomes almost like when you walk into a room and six people are like participating in an inside joke that you don't get. You don't necessarily hate those people, but it is a weird feeling, you know, to not be in on the joke. The character who they're all uh, uh, joined up to uh, to celebrate. Uh, it was played by Kevin Costner, although he's never seen in the film. And then uh, Lawrence Kasdan uh, cast him in Silverado as uh, all well because he's a great actor, but also because he he owed him one after cutting his him completely out. I believe there was some flashback scenes. I believe. Yep, and it's all you see of him in the movie now are the wrists at the beginning. That's it. And Drew, it would be silly to discuss the Big Chill without at least discussing for a few minutes the monumental impact that this soundtrack had on reigniting the idea that soundtracks could be a major revenue stream if you made a good film that people... This is where I mean the baby boomer industry began because it all became about repackaging these certain things. And when we see a movie now like The Post and it's Vietnam at the beginning and Creedence Clearwater Revival starts, uh, this movie is one of the reasons that that shit happens. It's because it got to the point where... It became a shorthand. This is your generation's entire emotional history in 15 songs. It became such a sort of commodity that I think they started to really strip any emotion out of these songs, unfortunately. It really has taken a long time to come back to them and be able to hear them as songs and not as nostalgia being jammed down my throat. Joy to the World is a little boy singing it in the bathtub. That's in the first scene. What does that tell me? This is their joy. They're happy. This was their happy ending. They graduated college. They got jobs. They have two beautiful babies in the bathtub. And this is their joy. They're happy. And it's about to be all fractured when they get that phone call. Interesting trivia note. 80s all over. Beloved icon Hoyt Axton wrote Joy to the World for Three Dog Night. I love the use of the Stones song in the church, which is iconic, and certainly it's where I fell in love with that tune. There's nothing wrong with the way the music is used here. It was the the way it then became a thing outside the movie. Yeah, it was being used as shorthand, but that's not the film's fault. Nope. Uh, you know, Procol Harum, Whiter Shade of Pale, that song might now be like forgotten like Donovan's Atlantis if it wasn't for Big Chill. Nice deep cut there, dude. Nice. No doubt, man. I know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I was I was half expecting to go into Big Chill being like, oh, this is my mom's generation whining and complaining about how they didn't get what they want. And meh, 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 meh. But it's mostly them being aware that they're entitled and how they failed and how they succeeded. I think it's yeah, a very good I don't think I don't think it's about, hey, we're awesome. I think it's about how far how far off the mark are we from where we started. Drew, does it freak you out a little bit? that we are now markedly older than the people in the Big Chill? Oh, shut up. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, yeah, it does. It really does. It hurts. Right. I'm looking at him now, and I'm like, oh, kids. Oh, kids. It's, it's so much fucking harder than you know. I will end with this one good point on the Big Chill. I think every generation should have a movie like this, where it both celebrates the people, and it's also honestly critical. You know, I would love to see a, a movie about my generation that is both affectionate and critical of our failures. I would, I would embrace that immediately. Well, guys, uh, this has been a terrific uh, run through a very uh, uneven month. Um, and next time, it's going to be even weirder. Uh, we're sending a frog to Alaska. John Candy's joining a cult. We need to find the Mercury 7. Richard Pryor is back in concert. James Bond wears a toupee. And the ice 
is going to break when we're back here in two weeks for October of 1983.